Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast about iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. And Sam is normally here, but he could not be with us tonight. This is episode 74. He's at 360 iDev, so we'll have to hear about that when he gets back. So, Alex, I know you haven't been to 360 iDev before. Uh, I went last year with Sam. I've got a couple of my teammates uh, there right now uh, with Sam. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to make it. But uh, Are there any conferences that you're planning to go to this fall? The big one that I'm going to be hitting up is uh, Release Notes, which is in September. September 27th through the 29th. That's a fun one. I went last year, and uh, there's lots of good stuff for uh, for people who run Indeed Dev Shop, so... I'm definitely going to be checking that one out again. What about yourself? Anything you're looking forward to this this coming fall? I was hoping to go to the release notes again this year because we, it was a great time. Last year was the first year, and we got to meet some of our listeners there, and and just the overall tone and and feel of the conference was very open, friendly. Uh, everybody was very outgoing and willing to kind of go out of the way to introduce themselves and. And a very friendly atmosphere. Uh, So if you do have a chance of going, I highly recommend it. But it is a little bit more slanted towards the indie dev. And uh, less... Kind of business focus, for sure. Yeah, Yeah. there's not a whole lot of technical talks, if any. And, you know, you probably won't see much code on slides. It's going to be more about all the things that go around running an, an app business. But still, you know, it's a it's a great conference, and uh, if you have a chance, check it out. I think there's still tickets available. And then uh, there's a couple more conferences coming up around the same time. Uh, there's the TriSwift NYC conference. We had Natasha on uh, a few uh, episodes ago, and she talked about that in some detail. Uh, she had recently done TriSwift Tokyo. Uh, so, and now she's doing the same thing in New York. Looks like it's going to be a great event. Lots of good speakers. That one is definitely going to be very programmer-centric. And then uh, there's another one in San Francisco coming up, which is the Swift Summit. And uh, they've had a few of those. I'm not sure what they're up to now, but I think they had some in some of the events in New York and I think they've had it in San Francisco a couple times as well, and maybe maybe the UK. And they usually get some really good speakers, and it looks like a good event. Uh, I'd like to get to one of those. Fortunately, I'm going to be traveling uh, during the Release Notes conference, so I'm not going to be able to make it to that. But I might see if I can get to one of the others. Cool. It sounds like we're going to have a, a busy fall for sure. Um, so just just to follow up on our uh, our beta tracking, uh, Sam was wrong. This was this was not the last beta last week with beta six. We've got a beta seven that came out oddly enough on a Friday. Yeah, so I thought that was interesting. I think beta six was on Monday, was it Monday or yeah. Tuesday? And then seven came right on the heels of that. On the on Friday, 
That makes me think that we're getting close to the end, but I yeah. still think there could be one more. We'll yeah. see. There were there were definitely, you know, I saw a few complaints about some things that broke with Beta 6, and I saw some weird behavior on my iPad where the uh, where the dock would sometimes disappear, the background would disappear periodically, which was kind of weird. Um, so I, I guess I'm not too surprised there was a Beta 7 not too long after, but... Um, looks like you think this is our last one or you think there's going to be more um i don't know i'm not sure how many of the swift proposals are completed and i don't know if they're gonna just call it and say it's too late (laughs) we're not shipping anything new with swift until uh, a point release i think i think we might see one more and then I, i think we'll be done but the prediction is that we'll have a media event. Apple will have a media event uh, the week of Labor Day. So that's really not that far away. It's only, what, two, three weeks away? A little two and a half weeks, maybe, from the time that we're recording this episode. And you think iOS 10 will come out then? I think so, or at least within a, a few days of that. So you mentioned two things right there that I wanted to do some follow-up on. The first one was uh, not being up on the latest in all the Swift stuff. And I just checked and there's seven accepted awaiting implementation proposals. Just look from looking at Swift Evolution, their, uh, their web page. But I am not sure if they're going to implement them or not, kind of like you were saying. But I did see this week that there's an app. It's called uh, Harundo, I think is how you say it. But it basically looks like this mail list reader that's specifically tailored for reading all the different Swift mail lists. So... And there's quite a bit of chatter that happens in the mailing list, yes. and that's that's kind of where all the the action is. So if you, if it's something, if you want to be actively involved in some of the decision making, and you kind of have to be on the mailing list and and participate. So I could see why this may be a, a handy An tool that someone actually built. Yeah, yeah. and you know. It it can be difficult to keep up with the mailing lists when it's mixed in with all your other email. So keeping that separate might be might be good too. Yeah, I thought it was a joke when I saw that there's an app just for following the Swift discussions, but you can you can read all the mailing lists, you can mute bookmark and search messages, and you can even like have favorite authors. So if you yeah. really like to hear what uh Chris Latner has to say or Erica Sedun or whatever. I I often see uh, see some interesting remarks from Chris pulled out and used in in updates and yeah. It seems like there can be some maybe, pretty maybe lively discussion. <laughs> yeah, maybe they're using this app. We'll we'll put a link in the show notes so you can check it out if you want to. Um, other thing you mentioned that I wanted to follow up on was uh, the release date for iOS 10. So we've got a new Apple rumor mill leaker person, uh, Barbara Streisand. Did you read this story? No, no, I didn't see this one. Um, so Barbara Streisand was interviewed recently, and 
I guess Siri says her name wrong. <laughs> it says it with like a hard, like with a Z instead of a soft S. So she called up Tim Cook, as you do when, you know, Siri pronounces your name wrong. And uh, apparently they told her it would be fixed in an update on September 30th. <laughs> hmm. So I don't know if that was either like uh, at least by September 30th, you know, one of those end of September things, or if it was, oh, this is the release date for, for the update that's going to come out, which would be iOS 10, obviously, that would... That would uh, fix your name pronunciation so i guess i guess time will tell if if we can add barbara streisand to the likes of mark german and all those other apple rumor leak people (laughs) i think that uh it probably fits in with some of the other rumors Uh, i think there was rumors that at&t staff were told to be available on the 23rd and the 30th for store resets. The 30th seems like it would be really late, doesn't it? I guess yeah. maybe we'll get our the GM in a week or two and then... I think they were talking about, or at least some sites were predicting that that the Tuesday or Wednesday after Labor Day, they'd have the media event. Pre-sales would happen that Friday, and then they'd start shipping around the 23rd. Shipping is normally when... I guess it used to be when the OS came out, but last year we got it the day of the event. So I guess we'll see what happens this year. Yeah. It may, may or may not be different. Um, and there's potentially a lot of different hardware that could be shipping too. So, you know, the phone is kind of a given, uh, but there's plenty of rumors that say that we'll get the second generation Apple Watch this fall, sometime in September, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, might not be the same event. Uh, plus, you know, we're supposed to get new MacBook Pros sometime between now and December. So, yeah, hopefully we don't have to wait too much longer for that. Yeah. I think uh, Apple's sales have been slipping quite a bit. Target said there's their sales of Apple devices has dropped 20%. And they don't even sell computers, so they just sell the the phones and iPads and watches. I think. Yeah, it's interesting what happens when you when you uh, have so much of your your business depend on certain suppliers or whatnot. I, I'm kind of in that boat, uh, you know, just having being responsible for Apple's release schedule really affects how I run my business, and a lot of iOS developers run their business uh, and all that. Having used to just have one ad company, so it's it's always interesting to to see what affects people's business and and we've tried to do things in the past to kind of you know not be as dependent on one one supplier. We went into Android, we got different ad partners now, so that if one of them goes bad, uh, we we're not up a creek. So yeah, it'll be it'll be cool to see how that plays out. Yeah, one other thing that I saw that was interesting this week, tools that were leaked by all the by some like hacker group. I mean, we talked about, you know, Apple's fight against FBI, the FBI to put in yeah. a back door. So, you know, recent kind of I told you oh, yeah. so. <laughs> yeah. Event. Yeah, the recent the argument from FBI was like, "Oh, just give us the back door. We'll keep it safe. No one no one bad will get a hold of it." And of course, 
Apple's like, no, someone's going to steal it from you guys. And they said that would never happen. And just this week, you know, their whole list of all their their suite of tools has been leaked and it's, you know, up for sale for the highest bidder. The WikiLeaks people have. And, you know, some some vendors did put stuff. in back doors and and now the <laughs> now the exploits are, are well known. Yeah, there's an article about I saw that Microsoft had a a backdoor that it was just in there for themselves. I think they accidentally left it in during development like for like Windows 7 and on or something crazy like that. Maybe even Windows Vista and on that lets you get past the secure boot feature. Um and it's it's the key has been leaked so it's that feature is essentially null and void it can be bypassed by anyone and they don't have a way that they can patch it to to make it non-vulnerable so that just gives more ammunition for apple to kind of rebuke the fbi and whoever else is trying to get them to do bad backdoor type things yeah i'm pretty happy that they were able to stay the course and and not uh not compromise on that uh, and hopefully Apple and other companies continue that that trend it becomes more and more challenging as as time goes on to protect your your identity and your personal and financial data yeah 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 we talked a little bit about the and you know beta 7 and the and the mailing list and one of the big changes that was introduced in beta 6 and we kind of touched on it before was the changes to the access control. So, you know, now we've got open and private and file private and uh, a number of, of, of different options. And private, what what they call file private is what private used to be. Yeah. So they made the new private more restrictive. So file private is just anything in that file can see it essentially. Yes, and before we had we had private, internal, and public before. So now we've got open and file private. So the old public is now open, essentially. Um. <laughs> yeah, and and you know this short explanation is if you are writing a library that you're sharing with others or or other code. And you want something to be accessible, you have to use open. Or if you want something subclassable, you have to use open. Yep. Um, I don't know. I feel like we have a few too many access control levels for my personal tastes. Uh, but. Yeah, and, and the open is a little bit weird because it's, you know, everything else is, you know, kind of who can see what. And then open is whether or not you can subclass. Yeah. And I I think there was a lot of debate back and forth of whether or not it's belongs there and and this is what they ended up on. I think for most people it's probably not going to make much of a difference. You know, I don't know how many people out there are writing libraries, but you know, it's it's something that you're going to realize pretty quickly and 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 switch it over. You know, I I suspect the compiler is going to warn you that that it needs to be set to open, or, or at least that you don't have access to it, to subclass. I don't know if it'll warn you. Oh, it might, 
if you try and subclass something, it's not going to compile. And I'm not sure what the message is going to be, but um, hopefully the message is clear. Yeah. And says, oh, you know, stupid. Just you need to mark it as open if you're going to subclass it. Or this is not marked as open. Sorry, tough luck. <laughs> or it'll just be uh, some obscure message that, yeah, you know, file does not exist. <laughs> Who knows? We'll have to try that out. So uh, I think we've talked a little bit about analytics before, and you know, we've been asked what analytics packages do we use, and and I know you you use Flurry, Alex. Yeah, I use I use some Flurry. I use some some uh, Firebase right now, um, but I had an interesting thing crop up this week with Flurry. So they they're doing one of those big redesigns where they you know there's the old version and the new version both accessible at the same time, and that's been out there for a while. But uh, one thing they just changed. We were going to look on the new version, and it said. Daily active users one, and at first I'm freaking out. You know, how do I only have one daily active user? That makes no sense. Uh, something's horribly gone wrong. But they they've taken out uh, tracking of unique users from an analytics package by default. Doesn't that seem kind of crazy? Yeah, yeah, that seems like one of the most like the basic common, thing yeah, that you would do. Yeah. <laughs> So what they do say now is you're supposed to call set user ID for every user who's in your app, and they specifically note you're not allowed to use any device-specific identifiers because it's against their service agreement. Right, and I think I think Flurry was the one that Steve Jobs called out specifically. Yeah, uh, for tracking uh, beta internal betas of ios so right. it's they got slapped on the on the wrist pretty hard and they kind of overcompensated and they go out of their way f- to prevent you from logging any anything user identifiable or or device specific so yeah yeah well so there used to be this uh udid which was a unique device identifier um and that was the thing that people were kind of abusing uh so that's that was one of the reasons that Flurry got slapped down originally. But then they added uh, the IDFA, the maybe that's identifier for advertising, which was uh, still like a device unique identifier that could be used by ab- advertisers. Um, but the user also had the ability to reset it. So it gave them a little bit of privacy options and gave you the os even let you like turn off completely so you always had a new one well there's also one that is it's device specific but it's also app specific yeah it's only for it's like a vendor i think it's called like the identifier for vendor i don't know if it has a fancy name like uh the other ones but i mean basically this is gives you a device unique id for only your specific apps so so advertisers could not use it to to say oh you've got these apps installed we'll sell your data so that you can you know use it in these other apps so and i don't think there's a way for users to disable that so but it's it's a relatively 
benign. Like you can't use that identifier to basically see what a bunch of apps are installed on a specific user's device where right. the advertising ID can be can be shared. That's what it's for. But you yes. can turn it off. And that's something that like every time you submit the app you get that question of are you using it? <laughs> and and it you gives you it a bit <laughs> warning that says if you if you lie you your app could be rejected and pulled from the store. Yeah, so the only thing I can figure is that the reason Flurry made this change is because Apple told them they weren't allowed to store the vendor IDs either because, in theory, they could do that lookup. Or maybe they got caught doing that lookup or something. Well, this has changed on the Play Store as well, so you get a, a nasty warning if, you, if you're if you using that identifier on the Play Store. So this is becoming kind of an industry thing to to crack down on it because of presumably because of abuse right but how how are you supposed to see how many users you have if well you, you don't can't... you don't need the the advertising id you can just use that vendor id because it is no the vendor id i think is also against their ter- uh flurry's terms oh, of service well it might be flurry's uh, but you know we're we're yeah. definitely using that uh, for lots of other things so I, yeah, so I, it seems like it's against their terms of service, so they won't do it, and they say you're not supposed to use it either, but you have to come up with your own way. Uh, it it doesn't make yeah. sense to me. If anyone has any clue why this is, let us know. Um, or do you just use your vendor identifier and forget about it? I don't. Yeah, I, most of the solutions <laughs> I've seen out there use the vendor identifier. Yeah, someone you're supposed and, to use. You know, we we get plenty of warnings for the advertising identifier if we if you try to use it or use a library that does use it. Uh, I think Google used to package some of their advertising stuff um, with the analytics, so it would kind of sneak in there. Uh, but they stopped doing that a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Flurry, you know, Flurry's kind of this weird. <laughs> Thing. I don't, you know, they're yeah. now owned by Yahoo. I, I've had Verizon. Uh, you oh, mean? sorry, now no, it's Verizon, Verizon now. <laughs> Keep up yeah. with this, Alex. <laughs> so I, I've had two apps. I that can definitely use see why Flurry. Verizon shouldn't have all this information, yeah. though. They've done all kinds of shady yeah. stuff. Well, they they can get probably the data another way, since they're the car- carrier for a yeah, lot of true. users. They just, they just inject IDs themselves, which is kind yeah. of scary, but they do. I've been, I have one app that I've migrated from Flurry to Google Analytics, and I, and I'm not a huge fan of Google Analytics either. I've had problems with updates frequently um, between versions, and I think even Google is kind of pushing us towards Firebase instead of uh, yeah GA. Yeah, we've got basic Firebase analytics in there, but a lot of stuff we we have not implemented. So we're we're kind of leaning towards uh, putting more stuff into Firebase so that we you know can tell how many users our yeah. app has. Well, one, like of, one of my nice apps that is using Flurry when they moved to Yahoo, I haven't been able to log into that account anymore. So like <laughs> I was able to reset one account, but the other one I haven't seen to to get the reset to work. So. It's kind of weird. Like 
it, the idea is known, but it won't let me reset the password. So it's weird. Yeah, it does so sound weird. It, you know, I'm not too worried about it because I'm trying to move everything off of Flurry anyway. And it's probably still yeah. one of the, <laughs> you know, if you want a good analytics package, it's probably still pretty good. But you know, it's all right. But it's it's yeah, it's different. I wouldn't if if you don't have an analytics package now, I would not use Flurry personally. It's just more people have them because it was it was one of the only games in town four or five yeah. years ago. So and you know you can get a lot of those base analytics from you know if you're using Fabric slash Crushlytics, you know it's they've got mm-hmm. answers which will tell you active users and a few a few of the key th- pieces of detail and they're probably adding more things now. I don't I'm sure they can do more than just active users. And then, uh, you know, Firebase seems to be getting good reviews for analytics so far. But you always run that risk with anything from Google that it could just go away. Or they'll make breaking changes whenever yeah. they feel like it. Yeah, so, <laughs> you know, no guarantees anywhere. <laughs> they can be acquired, they can be, a big company could just decide to shut it down at any time. So you never know. So what what have you been up to lately, Alex? You were you were telling me the other day about how awesome R. Swift yeah. is. Can you elaborate? Yeah, on and we bit? we were having a bit of a chat in the the Slack, uh, one of the Slack channels about handling constants and and strings and localization. And uh, I, I think I've mentioned R. Swift on the podcast before, but something that I use quite a bit for all those stringly type things. So. Segway identifiers and storyboard identifiers, cell identifiers, and, and now they support things like uh, local localized strings. So it can pretty much, you know, it'll parse the storyboards. It'll find use of color strings and image strings and all that, and create constants for everything. So it kind of works similar to the way Android's been doing it for a long time. It'll turn all those strings into constants. In, in this case, it's structs and enums. So now you've got type safety with all your strings, whether it's a cell identifier or an image name or now uh, to some degree with localization. So you can reference localized strings as constants and even pass in parameters to for format, string formats. So how do you actually integrate it? Is it a build script that you, you call out to R.Swift? Um, there's two ways of doing it. You could have it as a command line tool that you just run, or you can have it as a uh, run script in a build phase. So before compile, it'll regenerate, it'll parse everything and regenerate your generated R.Swift file, uh, which has all your constants in it. Okay. That sounds pretty cool. It seems like if you put it into your build phases, it just says automatic. Yeah, that's and... the easiest way to do it. And it just, you know, it, every time you hit run, it rebuilds it. Uh, you got to be careful about how you manage it in source control. And, you know, that's something you, you don't necessarily want to put in source control. You want it to just have it generate every time. Otherwise, you're going to potentially run into merge conflicts with everyone. Uh, Makes sense. So is it a is it a Ruby tool or what is it? How do you install R.Swift? Is it just a sh- straight up shell script or? 
It's a good question. I believe that one's actually written in Swift. Oh, that's I'd cool. have to double check that, but I think it is. That's nice that it's in the native toolkit. It seems like so many of our developer tools are all all Ruby, so you have to be kind of like a side Ruby person to to be able to troubleshoot when things go awry with them. So it sounds like this thing is as long as you have the right version of Swift installed. Yeah, well, <laughs> pretty solid. Yeah, I mean, if you're running it as part of the the build phase, you you pull down the the right branch for whatever version of Swift you're using, and then uh, because it's not really adding files to your project, it doesn't have you know a lot of reasons people go to Ruby for tools like this is because it there's a good library for writing to the project file to add files because that's always kind of a pain um, with these types of tools that generate code because writing to the file system is easy you know creating file templates and writing the file system you can do it in, in a number of different languages with a number of different template tools but since Xcode won't recognize the files unless it's in the project file in some sort of logical group and that project file is a very very difficult file format to work with uh, so you know Ruby's probably got the best option for scripting it that makes sense but you know that that's potentially like an area it to some degree that's that dependency makes it flaky to, to build tools that generate code um, because you are messing around with that project file and that format could change between versions of Xcode. So let me ask you this. Is there a way to... If, if I have my project set up to do Objective-C in Swift, can I use the uh, generated enums from r.swift in Objective-C as well? I would say probably not. Um, oh, man. No, I don't... <laughs> uh, I haven't really thought about it going back that way recent. You know, I don't know what what has changed on the Objective-C side in order to have visibility to a Swift enum, but I know earlier versions you did not, and that may still be true, but I don't... Uh, I, I'm i usually accessing Objective-C from Swift and rather than the other way around, so... Yeah. I, to be honest, I haven't tried to access the Swift enum from Objective-C in a while. So it may be possible now, but I wouldn't count on it. But there's probably similar tools. It's just, and you can create enums in in Objective C. So yeah, in yeah. theory, but who knows if they're but, actually there. But you know, en enums in Objective C don't have associated types, so uh, you are not associated types. It it doesn't have. Um, you know, you can't have associated values with, with the enum and Objective-C, so doing things like a parameterized formatted string for localization wouldn't work for sure. So speaking of localization, how does how does that work with R.Swift? And I believe it goes through and finds all your NS localized... Uh, it probably actually just hits your strings file and generates constants from that 
I don't think it goes through your source code and looks for all the NS localized strings, but you can, you know, if you haven't already done, created the strings file, you can run the gen strings command and that'll generate the strings file for me, for you. And then you can generate the run r.swift to generate the constants. This seems like one of those things that would be a perfect candidate to be a refactor tool within Xcode. Yeah. It seems like in, in the Java land, you can, in any IDE, you can just highlight a string and say, like, refactor into resource file or something like that. Yeah. I, you know, since we don't even have rename yet for as a refactor, <laughs> I think it's going to be, be a while before we see that. <laughs> It just seems like it's such low hanging fruit. Maybe I wonder if that could work as a uh, that could be a Swift plugin or a Xcode plugin. Yeah, huh? yeah, we could see that as a source kit extension. Can you write to other files? I guess you only get access to the source code. Hmm. Yeah, and that's definitely a challenge with extensions as they exist today. You know, you only have visibility to one file at a time. Um, which is which is all you all you need for like a one off, but you couldn't like run it for. You would need the strings file and whatever file you're editing. Yeah. Hmm. Guess that maybe that blows that idea out of the water. Yeah. Bummer. <laughs> I mean, there's things that you can do for localization. You can turn on warnings. So, you know, Xcode eight now has a will do static analysis to find strings that haven't been localized, but. You know, I don't. I don't think there's a fix. Do they have a fix? I, I I'm guessing not. I haven't tried Xcode eight uh, for that yet. I, I'm still a little hesitant to use it on a production project. That is a bummer. But yeah, yeah. I, R. Swift, I find to be very handy to deal with all those stringly type things and in a safer way. There's some other tools out there that are similar, uh, but R.Swift has been working reasonably well for me. It's one of my first uh, things I pull in when I, I do a Swift project. <laughs> so that's about all the time we have left this week. So why don't you tell me where I can find you on the internet, Alex? Uh, you can find me at AJ Robinson. Uh, as always, I'm at Alex Argo on Twitter. You can find the podcast at Shared Inst. And there's some other guy... He'll be back next week. He can tell you then where you can find him. It'll be top secret for this week. Leave us some, some good reviews. We didn't get any good ones, I think, as I as the podcast recorded to read. So first one that, that gets posted, Sam promised he would read it. So when he's back, he'll <laughs> read whatever you guys put in the review. If we have to bleep things out, that's, that's what we'll do. Uh, I'll see you guys next week.